Hey everyone, welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. Today's episode is a continuation of last week's episode about the book Kim Ji-yong, born 1982, by Chol Namju. There's a content warning for this episode of topics such as depression, including postpartum depression, mental illness, suicide, murder, violence, sexual harassment, online bullying, and trolling. Also, this episode will contain spoilers. So before we get into additional concepts in this book, I wanted to delve a bit more into the F word that I mentioned in the last episode, feminism. According to the International Women's Development Agency, feminism is about all genders having equal rights and opportunities. In my own life, I have come across people who think feminism is about women overpowering men somehow or becoming the ones in charge, but I don't see it as that at all. I think that most feminists do not hate men or want to eliminate men. I think this ideology, like all ideologies and religions and schools of thought, does have some people who believe an extreme interpretation of the core ideas, but I don't think that these extreme ideas are what the majority who subscribe to this ideology think. I think there is an impression that some people have that feminism is only about pushing women into a workforce or somehow diminishing the role of work women do at home in caring for children and their families. But in my own opinion, the word opportunities in the definition makes clear that feminists just want to create choices that are not confined by one's gender. There is an opportunity to choose either work in a workforce outside of the home or work inside of the home or both, depending on one's choice. Finally, because this is about equal rights, feminism in theory can benefit other genders too and people who identify as anything else because it is about equality for all. The book does not talk directly about feminism, but because it points out gender inequality in Korea, a lot of people consider Kim Ji-yong, born 1982, to be a feminist book. Another topic to review is mental illness, particularly mental illness surrounding pregnancy and postnatal mental health. A small spoiler here that at the end of the book, we find out that the story has been told by Jiang's psychologist's point of view. Jiang's mental health diagnosis is postnatal depression that progressed to childcare depression. The book does not really mention her ever having been evaluated or treated for mental illness earlier in her life. Considering hormonal changes and everything else that comes along with pregnancy and childbirth, including physical changes and changes in medications that one is allowed to take while pregnant, along with social stressors, pregnancy and childbirth increase the risks of relapse in mental health illnesses. Some women may not be open about their mental health due to the stigma of being considered a bad mother, also due to a fear that they will not be allowed to look after their own child, or concerns that others knowing that they are in a bad mental state will affect how they are treated by them. Additional concepts covered in the book, such as worries about employment status during the pregnancy and after the child is born, how to deal with childcare, and especially being expected to give up work, along with a general change in one's role, can all make a decline in mental health more likely. And this is not just within Korea, but generally with regards to mental health during and after pregnancy. Traditionally, mental health was treated with traditional Korean medicine. Western medicine was introduced during the Japanese occupation. At that time, psychiatric hospitals as well as missionary hospitals were introduced in Korea. Chinese and Korean traditional medicine focused on a holistic approach that required restoring harmony between contrasting energies. These included the idea that an individual could be cured and returned to their place in society. This differs from Western medicine, which viewed mental illness as chronic and requiring long-term incarceration for the good of society. 
Modern-day Korea has a high rate of death by suicide, as you may already be aware. Although the government has been creating initiatives in recent years to increase mental health awareness, articles I read stated that mental illness is still not really spoken about or focused on in Korea, despite the high rates of suicide. There could still be a strong stigma if you admit you are mentally ill or if you admit that you are receiving or have received treatment for mental illness. An article I read in Korea Biomedical Review states, quote, The ridicule that follows a mental health diagnosis often stems from the fact that people are mostly unfamiliar with, afraid of, or downright repulsed by the idea of mental illness, end quote. This article, which was written in 2018, goes on to say, quote, Overall, the suicide culture stems partly from people unable to or refusing to admit that they have setbacks in life. A society that ridicules people who are poor, lonely, or sick compounds the problem. This is a vicious cycle that has driven up the suicide rate, end quote. Another article from the Korea Herald quotes a doctor, Dr. Park Jen-seng, as saying, quote, Life is like a marathon, so in the course of life, sometimes people can fail, and sometimes people succeed. But in Korea, if they fail, sometimes they think they can't rebuild, end quote. People who seek mental health are, in theory, protected from being discriminated against, but when people apply to universities and jobs, this information can become known, or at least applicants have a perception that this information could become known and could prevent them from being accepted. This fear prevents them from seeking formal mental health help. Another article I read in the Korean Biomedical Review mentions an illness that exists only in Korea. Now, I don't know if it's true that this is only in Korea, or if it's even considered a formal illness, but at least one psychiatrist, Dr. No Gyushik, thinks so. He stated in the article, quote, Hwatbyong is an overlap of depression and anxiety that include cardiovascular symptoms of heart attack and chest tightness. Phenomenon prevalent among married, middle-aged women is known to arise from severe conflicts between the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law and from a wife having to obey her husband at all times. The Confucian environment probably contributes to the Hwatbyong. End quote. This kind of goes back to what we talked about in part one of the Kim Ji Young episode that there are still some remnants of Confucian patriarchy in Korea, and that some daughters in law face a great deal of pressure, especially during the Chuseok holiday. And again, as mentioned in part one, Ji Young's husband is actually a pretty reasonable guy, and Ji Young isn't expected to obey him or his parents at all times. But despite this, her mental health suffers profoundly. While mental health services are quite accessible in Korea, not many people seek therapy like we do here in the States. While psychiatric medications are fairly affordable in Korea, cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy is not covered by insurance there. In addition, due to the traditional practice of having one's family members or community or religious leaders being the ones to provide support with psychological issues, some people in Korea do not feel comfortable with the thought of strangers filling this role. Some in Korea see the act of seeking therapy as being weak-willed. Dr. No states, quote, I think the high barrier to getting mental health treatment here has a lot to do with our Confucian culture that emphasizes individual will, spiritual strength, and self-discipline. One of the most respected historical figures in our country, Admiral Yi Sun-shin, is well known for saying, those who seek death shall live, those who seek life shall die. Buddhism from the Shilla dynasty also has a proverbial saying, that roughly translates into, everything comes from the mind. These thoughts are embedded in our culture. End quote. Just a note that was written in Romanized English or like Romanized Korean, so I might have pronounced that wrong. Sorry. 
But the stigma surrounding seeking mental health services is lessening in Korea, so things are hopefully getting better. And I want to personally assure you all that your mental health is just as important as your physical health. The same way you go to a doctor to seek treatment for your physical health, you should not be discouraged to seek out professional help to assist you with your mental health. There is absolutely nothing wrong with taking care of yourself, and we are all living through particularly stressful times right now. You aren't weak for seeking help, and it actually takes a lot of strength to get psychological help. The following events are not discussed at length in the book, but might explain why the book had such an intensely negative response from anti-feminist Koreans. The calling out of violence against women in Korea has been pretty strong in recent years. A large outpouring of grief and outrage was the result of a murder of a woman at a public restroom in Gangnam Station Exit 10 in 2016. A young woman in her 20s was murdered by a man who did not know her, who told the police that he had killed her because he felt ignored by women. After this incident and the subsequent outcry, misogynistic crimes gained a lot of public attention in Korea. This Gangnam incident resonated personally with many women in Seoul who had experiences that they felt could have ended up like this one. The exit of the Gangnam station where the attack occurred was covered with bouquets of flowers in memory of the victim and post-it notes from people expressing their disbelief at the incident and their condolences. Here is a quote from an article about this incident. Quote, I find myself getting more and more terrified of others, said radio writer Kim Sojong, 34. I've gotten more fearful of public spaces in particular. I think, don't use the bathroom, don't use the elevators, don't walk on side streets, end quote. Some of the post-its taped up in memorial said, hashtag survived. I think women living in many parts of the world can relate to these fears as well. But for the women in Seoul, because Gangnam is not exactly a shady area of Seoul or anything, and because I know Seoul in general has a reputation of being a fairly safe city compared to other big cities around the world, this was a huge shock for them and made them feel quite vulnerable. There was, however, a backlash to this public outpouring of grief, with some people accusing the women grieving in this way as focusing too much on the man's motives. Some people objected to women expressing their fears that they may be victimized in the same way, because this fear implied that all men could be viewed as potential assailants. Some people left internet comments such as one quoted in the Korea Herald that said, quote, Ugly Korean women can relax. No one's going to touch you, so stop worrying and use the public bathrooms as much as you need, end quote. The attacker had mental illness, and based on this, the police ruled this murder to not be a hate crime motivated by hatred towards women. I'll read an excerpt from an article in the Korean Herald. The Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency said in a press briefing that the killing by the 34-year-old man, only identified by his surname, Kim, was a typical crime committed by the mentally disturbed. The suspect, who had no prior contact with the victim, told police that he had committed the crime because he had been belittled by women many times in the past. Police pointed out that killing the first woman Kim saw in the toilet meant that his crime was neither planned in advance nor systematic. There is a need to distinguish between hate crimes and crimes driven by mental illness. The latest case falls in the latter category, the police said in a press briefing. Hate crime arises from prejudice on a certain group, while mental illness-driven crimes are usually committed due to symptoms such as delusional thoughts and auditory hallucination, end quote. Okay, so make of that what you will, but to me and to others, it sounds like the attacker was targeting a certain group. He was targeting women. According to that same article, he lay in wait with a knife all night near that public bathroom. He let six men use that public bathroom unharmed and only attacked when a woman entered the facility. Even if the attacker felt slighted by women, that does not mean he should be allowed to murder anyone and certainly not a total stranger. His mental illness, schizophrenia, 
may have played some part in his actions, to be sure, especially if he was not receiving any treatment for it. However, I consulted with a mental health professional who states that research shows that having schizophrenia alone does not make one more likely to commit a violent crime such as this one. Also, multiple medical journals report that violent behavior among people with schizophrenia is not common. Due to the nature of the hallucinations some with this illness may experience, sometimes violence can occur. You may have heard about the Me Too movement in your country, but if you don't know about this movement, in 2017, the hashtag MeToo went viral on Twitter. Individuals who worked in Hollywood started to speak up about sexual harassment and assault they allegedly experienced from Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein by using a hashtag that said MeToo. The MeToo hashtag started trending on Twitter as individuals responded with this hashtag to indicate that they too had been a victim of sexual assault. The trending hashtag shed light on how common the problem was. The MeToo movement came to Korea in 2018 when a woman prosecutor, Seo Jihyun, accused her superior of sexually harassing her at a funeral. After word of this incident spread, Seo Jihyun was transferred to another office, a move that she considered a demotion and retaliation for making her allegations public. The person she accused of the harassment said that he does not remember touching her inappropriately and also denied that the transfer was done unfairly or as punishment for these allegations. After this incident, the Me Too movement to call out sexual harassment in the workplace and in schools became prominent in Korea, with people marching in the streets to protest it. This brings me to my next point, which is sexual harassment against women in the workplace. We already talked in the previous episode about discrimination against women in the workplace related to the assumption that women will likely take a long leave of absence or just quit altogether in order to get married or to have a child. But this is about sexual harassment in the workplace. I want to take a minute to acknowledge that anyone could potentially be the target of sexual harassment. It's unfortunately not an experience unique only to women. I also want to mention that women can also be, and sometimes are, perpetrators of sexual violence or harassment. Although the book brings up sexual harassment that an adolescent Kim Ji-young experiences, I will be focusing on harassment she experiences at her office. Things like coworkers and clients getting too hands-on or making an inappropriate move are seen as routine in the corporate world in which Ji-young is trying to move up as a young adult. During a group job interview, she is asked, quote, You're at a meeting with the client company. The client gets, you know, handsy. Squeezing your shoulder, grazing your thigh. You know what I mean? Yeah? How will you handle that situation? Let's start with Miss Kim Ji-young, end quote. The way the character poses these questions to Ji-young so frankly makes it seem almost inevitable that such an incident would occur. I want to share with you an excerpt from a Korea Herald article about a 2017 study done in Korea about workplace sexual harassment. The excerpt may explain why this type of behavior is seen as almost routine or to be expected. Quote, among those who came forward as victims, 90.4% suffered secondary damage. Nearly 53% were bullied, excluded, dismissed, transferred, or became the subject of rumors, while 37.5% saw their complaints ignored. Of the victims, 83.2% were women. Some 69% of the victims said that they had suffered from other forms of harassment while also being sexually harassed, end quote. Based on this, it seems like people will often either ignore claims of sexual harassment or punish those who have come forward to complain about it. This may be the case in the country where you live as well. There was even the prominent case of the mayor of Seoul, Park Wonsoon, who was accused of sexual harassment by his assistant last year in 2020. The mayor took his own life the next day. An independent investigation found that the accusations seemed credible. 
The irony was that he was someone who had won the nation's first sexual harassment case in Korea during his career as a lawyer. In Kim Ji-yong, there is a part of the plot where Ji-yong meets up with her former co-workers and they tell her that someone, a security guard, installed a tiny video camera in the women's restrooms on a particular floor of their office building. In the story, footage from this camera is shared amongst male colleagues and also shared publicly on the internet. None of the women found out about it until one woman, who was dating one of her male co-workers, was warned by him to not use that particular restroom anymore. Through him, she found out the reason why he didn't want her in there, and she told the other women in the office. In the book, the characters take legal action against the security guard, and some even leave altogether to start a new firm. But despite this, they are left with the mental anguish of having been exposed and betrayed. They lost their trust in the male co-workers that they had previously worked alongside every day. Those male colleagues had known that footage of them was being filmed and shared, but they did nothing to protect them and didn't even tell them that it was going on. This type of crime is called molka in Korea. If you don't know, molka is the act of placing tiny cameras, like the size of a pinhead, in inconspicuous areas in spaces where people will be undressed. These are spaces such as public restrooms, locker rooms, dormitory showers, and hotel rooms. They are also sometimes placed strategically in subway stations, both in the public restrooms and in or around staircases and escalators to try and catch upskirt photos and videos. And it's been extremely widespread. There were arrests for a whole ring of hotel spy cams in Korea in 2019. The cameras were hidden in electrical sockets and hair dryer holders, which filmed 1,600 hotel guests and live streamed them online. Just a few weeks ago, a former elementary school principal admitted to placing tiny hidden cameras in the female teacher's restrooms and storing some of the images on his phone. Now, I want to point out that explicit adult videos or material are not legal in Korea. So some articles I've read state that it's common for people to just secretly film intimate situations of unsuspecting people and share that footage on their smartphone with their friends or post them on the internet. The shame and vulnerable situations that victims of this type of footage get placed in have led to some of the victims ending their own lives. It's a very serious situation and not something that can be dismissed lightly. Protests against Molka happened in Seoul a few years ago with the slogan, quote, my life is not your porn, end quote. Many people expressed a concern that the sentencing for these types of crimes is often too lenient. As most of you know, Molka scandals have also touched K-pop celebrities, most famously with the Burning Sun case. Some huge names were associated with it, which involved convictions of some celebrities for filming women in intimate situations without the woman's knowledge and spreading the footage via group chat. Female K-pop stars have been targeted as well. In the case of Guhara of the former girl group Kara, Hara's ex-boyfriend threatened to expose footage of them together in intimate moments. Hara claimed to not have known about or consented to this footage being taken in the first place. The public court battle she had with her ex led to relentless online hate comments against her. Hara sadly took her own life in 2019 as a result of these stresses and pressures. Despite widespread molka and scandals such as the Nth Room, which is too terrible for me to get into here, the Me Too movement continues to be an issue in Korea today. But some people think that the complaints of victims and those outraged by these acts go too far. There is a big backlash against the Me Too movement in Korea, particularly from a faction of mostly young men in their 20s and early 30s. These individuals believe that the demonstrations for Me Too against Molka and sexual violence are in fact discriminatory against men. They believe that attention to feminist causes, harassment claims, and claims of gender-based violence leave men unfairly vulnerable to potentially being wrongfully accused of harassment or assault. 
They also believe that initiatives and laws that try to address gender inequality, in fact, give women an unfair advantage in the workplace. There are some anti-feminist groups made up mostly of young men that have propped up in Korea and have held counter-protests and rallies against feminism. Their online presence includes websites where they share hateful memes filled with anti-feminist and also anti-immigrant feelings. They tend to take provocative actions in response to the complaints of others, and not only about feminism. When the parents of the Sewol ferry disaster went on a hunger strike in an effort to force the government to respond, one of these sites planned an event where members showed up to where the hunger striking parents were and staged a binge-eating demonstration right in front of them. One such group played a controversial part in the memorial for the Gangnam murder in 2016. This is from a Korea Jungang Daily article. Quote, Outrage against misogyny and crimes against women was further ignited when the Ilbe, a self-admitted xenophobic and sexist online community, sent a wreath to the Gangnam Station site Thursday with a statement that read, quote, Let's remember that soldiers died in the singing of the Cheonan warship because they were men. End quote. We just spoke about the death of Gu Hara due to online trolls and the actions of her ex-boyfriend. Misogynist hate comments against former member of FX Sully led to her struggles with mental health and her subsequent death by suicide the same year as Hara. This is just a side note to remind you not to be a troll on the internet who sends posts or hateful comments. Don't be a troll in real life either, for that matter. Find other ways to spend your time, like reading books. These young men in these anti-feminist groups have grown disillusioned with President Moon, who said he was going to be a feminist president, and they are less aligned with liberal politics in Korea in general as a result of their perceived slights. You should know that there are some radical women's rights groups online in Korea who take an extreme view of feminism. They are also criticized for being xenophobic, as well as anti-men and anti-trans people. They also think that men are inferior to women. Some of the most famous sites cropped up in response to Molka scandals, and in a famous incident, the extreme women's rights group posted Molka footage of a nude male model from an art class on the internet. These radical women's rights groups is part of the reason why the term feminism seems to be a bit more controversial of a term to use in Korea than here in the U.S., but for those who legitimately want equality among genders and all people, it seems like the backlash against mainstream feminism is still very harsh in Korea especially since women are still below men in many ways in Korean society. So why are these men so upset? The Constitution of Korea, as well as the Military Service Act, make it mandatory for men to serve in the Korean military. This has been required since the Korean War because South Korea is still technically at war with North Korea. While women can serve in the military, they don't get mandatory drafted in like men do. Men who don't go can be imprisoned, so all of them really do have to go unless they have political or religious objections. Some of you may have heard of the BTS Act that will potentially exempt them from going, but that's a different story. Unlike their fathers or grandfathers who may have felt a sense of duty to serve their country, modern Korean men don't really feel that it's either fair or worthwhile to have to serve. The military culture can be one of brutality and violence. People may be verbally or physically abused by their superiors or by other enlistees. A Korean study showed that, quote, 72% of men aged in their 20s think that the male-only draft is a form of gender discrimination, and almost 65% believe that women should also be conscripted. Almost 83% believe that military service is better to be dodged, if possible, and 68% believe it is a waste of time, end quote. I actually think that compulsory military service is a legitimate concern that these men have, but I'm not sure that the ones who are protesting feminism are targeting the right people for their outrage. After all, it was other men who decided to make the military draft mandatory for them, not women. Another reason for discontent in Korea is the prospect of declined upward mobility faced by young Koreans. 
Right now, especially, is a really difficult time to try and make it in Korea to be successful. There's currently a real estate crisis going on in Seoul. There's a feeling among younger adults in Korea that upward mobility is getting more and more difficult to achieve. So some men see women's equality as a direct threat to them from a jobs and economic standpoint, especially because women don't lose two years of professional momentum by having to serve in the military. Even though we just saw in Kim Ji-young that some women never make it back to the workplace or come back way later in life after their kids have already grown. That's usually more than two years of being away. An article from Foreign Policy goes more in-depth about these anti-feminist sentiments among some Korean men. Quote, South Korea's experts who have focused on this issue point to two tendencies among young Korean men, worship of the idea of meritocracy and misogyny. Young South Koreans born in the late 1990s, when South Korea was well into being a prosperous liberal democracy, have little sense of the historical struggles that defined the older generations, such as the Korean War or the fight against military dictators for democracy. Instead, their struggle is with a series of examinations. Entrance exams for high schools, entrance exams for colleges, and entrance exams for high-paying, secure jobs. This is the generation that has spent most of their lives taking or preparing for exams in the infamously grueling hagwon or cram school system. As a result, younger South Koreans have internalized the logic of those exams and elevated it into a type of distorted moral sensibility, where the poor are to blame for their own suffering." End quote. The same article pointed to studies showing that young men these days in Korea have, quote, aggressive misogyny. They said, quote, To be sure, sexism has been a long-standing issue in South Korea. Yet this generation's aggrieved version of sexism has taken on a different character from their father's more traditional version of sexism featuring machoism and strict gender roles. If older Korean men see themselves as patriarchs who oversee women, younger Korean men see themselves as victims of feminism, end quote. This was a really fascinating article, and I encourage you to read the whole thing if you also find this interesting. The link will be in the show notes and on my blog. A Korean Herald article further elaborated, quote, Most men born in the 90s nowadays spend their 20s trying to get their degrees, finish their military duties, which takes about two years, and somehow secure a job. They have yet to experience sexism and male privilege at the workplace. Lee Soo-jung, a professor of criminological psychology at Gyeonggi University, told the Korea Herald, Some of them may genuinely feel that their female colleagues have an advantage in the job market, as they don't have to serve in the military. We have to take all of these things into account, that men's experiences in this country are different according to each generation. These young men may be realizing that patriarchy, including the notion that links militarism only with masculinity, is a burden for men as well, although they seem to be releasing their frustration at the wrong target. End quote. To me, it's interesting that these men appear to be threatened by women reaching equality to them, which they are not even equal yet, and seeing that as a loss of privilege for themselves. These anti-feminist feelings of victimhood due to forced military service may be part of what led to the backlash against this book. So, with all of this in mind, let's consider the reaction to the book Kim Ji-yong, Born 1982. So I'll admit that the whole reason I even picked up this book way before I even thought to have a podcast about Korean books is because I saw the reaction to this book reported by Korean media. And the weird thing is, when I read this book for the first time, I was like, oh, what's the big deal? There's really nothing that seemed all that radical in it to me as someone born and raised in the US. Yet the reaction made me think that something really revolutionary must be in here. Jiyoung, the character, is never quite angry in the book, nor does she get like murderous or vengeful over how oppressed she is or anything like that. I think she just feels that things could have been better for her had they been more different, more equitable. 
I already mentioned in part one of the episode that the actress Jong Yumi, who portrays Jiang in the movie, had thousands of hate comments posted on her Instagram the day that it was announced that she was going to be in the film. Again, this was on the day of the casting announcement, so the movie hadn't even been made yet, but already people were mad. A member of the girl group Red Velvet, Irene, mentioned that she'd read the book, and people started posting images on social media of them burning photographs of her, destroying her photos and merchandise in protest of her, just saying she read it. Many people went online to complain about it and said they would stop being her fan. As far as I know, she didn't claim to hate all men or anything all that controversial, but the reaction was quite intense. The Korea Herald reported, quote, On top of online abuse leveled at Irene, a group of Korean men has recently sought online crowdfunding for a book project titled Kim Ji-hun, Born 1990. The book, a parody of Cho's novel, features a male protagonist born in 1990 and claims to show the reverse discrimination that men in Korea face on a daily basis, end quote. Ironically, the anti-Irene backlash actually made the sales of the book go way up. Male stars also mentioned reading Kim Ji-young, including Kim Nam-joon, aka RM from BTS. But as far as I know, people weren't destroying his photos and posting about it online as a result. A petition was filed to the Blue House asking the government to stop production on the movie. An article described it like this. Quote, the petition's creator, who identified himself as a 19-year-old student, argued that, quote, the biased perspective on society viewed only from a certain gender's point of view is too subjective. If this is put onto screens, then it goes against the gender equality that Korea should be pursuing, end quote. Okay, I've just said a ton about people, especially men who are not exactly inspirational heroes, but obviously what was discussed here can't be applied to every Korean man or all of Korean society. Korean society, like all societies, have some aspects to it that are less pleasant than others. To make a point that not all men feel the way that some anti-feminists feel, I want to read a quote from the male star of the film who played Kim Ji-young's husband, the actor Gong Yoo. At a press conference for the film, Gong Yoo said, quote, My family was the first thing that popped into my mind after I finished reading the script. I hardly ever cry after I read, but this was one of those rare moments. There was a part of Daehyun, Daehyun is the name of Jiang's husband, by the way, that I really connected to, as if I was actually playing him. I became Daehyun merely through reading the script, and that's when I instinctively thought I should do this. I also thought a lot about my family, and I called my mom afterwards to thank her for raising me, end quote. Oh, Gong Yoo thanked his mom, guys. So cute. So to wrap up this episode, I just want to finish by saying a few things about the author. The author of this book is Cho Nam Joo. And she's a former television writer. In a Financial Times interview, she said, quote, What can I say about Kim Ji-yong? If you look at the cover of the UK and Japan editions, it shows a silhouette with no face. This shows her very well. She doesn't undergo great tragedy or happiness. She can be seen as the collective experience of Korean women, a daughter, a student, an employee, and a mother, with the element of the individual taken out. That is what Kim Ji-yong is, end quote. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Next week, we will have a special season finale show where my friend Rebecca and I will be discussing the book and the movie Kim Ji-young, Born 1982. I will also have some additional details about what you can expect for future seasons of the show. As a reminder, you can reach me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. You can also email me at kpopbookshelfpod at gmail.com. The links in my bio and show notes will take you to the articles I use to research this episode. Special thanks to V, who conducted research on mental health for this episode. Special thanks to AO for designing the blog. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye.